the Destiny Foundation presents the sixth lecture series entitled The Lost Communities by Rabbi Beryl Wine. We hope you enjoy. This, the fifth lecture in the series, number 216, is entitled Tunisia, Morocco by Rabbi Beryl Wine. There were Jewish communities in what uh, we would call Mauritania at the time of the first temple. And the tradition amongst uh, the Jews was that they never went into the exile of Babylonia. One of the most interesting things is that in many communities, the holiday of Purim was not celebrated because uh, they were unaware. They were there before Purim. And uh, it's a, a very strange thing. Only later when the Spanish Jews came after the expulsion from Spain, uh, that uh, Purim, so to speak, became a holiday uh, amongst these certain groups that lived in the Mugrabi in the uh, western part. It's really Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia. And uh, the Romans had conquered it. The great city of Carthage stood there. And in the Punic Wars, the Romans finally overcame Carthage and destroyed it, and colonized it. And amongst the colonists were Jews who came and uh, were active and built Jewish communities in what is today uh, present-day Morocco and Tunisia. The Jews who came under the Romans had connections with the Jews in the land of Israel. It's interesting that Mauritania is even mentioned in the Talmud. Not very favorably, but in, uh, in Yevomos, uh, the Gemara mentions that the people in Mauritania dress immodestly and that they are held up to ridicule because of the fact of their immodest dress. But there was a connection between the Jews in Mauritania and the Jews in Israel and the Jews in Babylonia. When uh, Christianity came and took over the Roman Empire... So then uh, the situation of the Jews worsened considerably in uh, Tunisia, Morocco. And they were subject to all of the persecutions that the Christians visited upon the Jews. Nevertheless, the Jewish condition in, in Morocco was never good. Never good. And uh, it's an amazing testimony to the tenacity of people even more so than in the countries in Europe, because in the countries in Europe, when it got really bad, they moved. They moved eastward, they moved to different places. Here you have a stable community uh, that existed for, uh, if we say from the time of Solomon, then we're talking 2,500 years, we're talking at least 2,000 years, there still are tens of thousands of Jews who live in Morocco today, who did not come to the land of Israel as of yet. And uh, this community was stable, it stayed, they never left. And in spite of all of the terrible persecutions, the persecutions of the Romans, and then the persecutions of the Christians, and then the persecutions of the different sects of the Muslims, which was the worst persecution of all, the Jewish communities survived, and uh, to a certain extent even flourished. And individual Jews became very powerful and wealthy. I think the thrust of tonight's lecture should be there's a calumny that goes out in the world somehow that the Jews always lived well under Muslim rule and that all the problems regarding the Jews and the Muslims began with the Zionists. We find that repeated in uh, many, many different circles. It's comforting uh, to some people to be able to say that. Uh, but it's not true. It's uh, definitely not true, and as we will see here, uh, the Jews were subjected to awful, awful conditions. They couldn't do anything, and yet somehow they were able to survive and uh, prosper. In Morocco, there were uh, different groups of people. There were the Moors, there were the Berbers, there were the Arabs, three different ethnic groupings all of whom didn't particularly like each other. problem always in multi-ethnic societies is that the prejudice of human beings is such that somehow uh, 
they're not tolerant of each other. So the Jews uh, originally were with the Berber tribesmen. In fact, many Berber tribes were Jewish. And the question arose whether they were originally Jewish, or meaning descended from the Jews who were there from the beginning, or whether they were in fact converts to Judaism, that somehow Jews converted these Berber tribes, and instead of worshipping idols, etc., they accepted Judaism, though they were, uh, relatively speaking, pretty primitive, warlike. We have a record of a rabbi that visited them, and uh, he said that wherever he went in the Jewish world, he always preached, you know, that Jews should be honest, Jews should be moral. Here he had to preach that Jews shouldn't be murderers. Because that was the society. It was a society of blood revenge and a society of constant war amongst the tribes. And the Jews uh, sided with the Berbers. When Islam came, the Jews were almost destroyed by the Christians. But by the 7th century, the Muslims came. When the Muslims came, so uh, indirectly, the Jews are the ones that helped the Muslims convert all of the tribes in North Africa to Islam. Because, uh, at least on the surface, there are great similarities between the beliefs of the Jews, monotheism, one God, other types of basic ideas, and between Islam. And because of that, therefore, the presence of the Jews enabled uh, the Muslims to make uh, great inroads very quickly. And those whom they were not able to convert by persuasion, uh, they converted by other means, by the sword, so that by uh, the early 700s, all of that area is Muslim. Now, the Muslims didn't stop in North Africa, but they crossed the Straits of Gibraltar and came into Spain. And the Jews came with them. Jews from North Africa and also Jews from Babylonia came with them and came into Spain. And they were the nucleus of the great Spanish Jewish community. But the difference between Spain and North Africa was enormous. Because the Muslims in Spain were worldly were educated, uh, went uh, into philosophy and into poetry, and were interested in art and architecture. And the Muslims in North Africa remained tribal Muslims. Even though they were Muslims, they remained as though they were the original Berbers and the Moors, and they kept on fighting with each other. Uh, the fact that they were all Muslims somehow did not uh, have the effect that it had in Spain. So the Jews in Spain, because they lived in such a cultured society, uh, you know, we always say in Yiddish, the way it is in the non-Jewish world, that's the way it is in the Jewish world. When Jews lived in cultured society, so they were cultured. The Jews of Alexandria, when I discussed Egypt with you, and the Jews in Spain... Whereas the Jews that lived in primitive societies, to a certain extent, remained primitive simply because the environment didn't challenge them and the environment didn't force them into any sort of improvement. In the year uh, 789, the uh, Muslim rulers founded a dynasty in Morocco under the name of the Idris family, and they conquered Tangier, and they uh, took the Jews who lived there and they employed them. They used them uh, as tax collectors. It's one of the uh, universal things that happened to Jews throughout the ages is that they were basically moneylenders and tax collectors, the two most unpopular professions that you can imagine, guaranteed to uh, stir up uh, resentment within the population, nobody loves a tax collector and nobody loves a banker, a usurious lender. And the rates that were always charged in the Middle Ages were very, very high wherever you were. So we're talking 25, 35, even 45 percent interest. And because of that, uh, 
the uh, Jews always found themselves in a precarious situation. Now, uh, in the year 808, the great city of Fez was founded. And Fez became a major city in Morocco for the Jews. The other main center was Kairouan, which is Tunisia, Morocco. Now, Kairouan, the Jews came there uh, almost by accident. But what happened in Kairouan was uh, the story of the four shipwrecked rabbis that were kept captured by pirates and held for ransom. And the Jews ransomed them. But every community that ransomed the rabbi demanded that he come to their community and serve them. And these four rabbis, uh, who were the great uh, heads of yeshivas in Boville, in Babylonia, came. One came to Bari in Italy, uh, one came to Kairouan here, one came to Morocco, one came to Spain. And that's how the Torah spread, because of the fact that these people came. And... Uh, Eventually, in Kairouan, there was a yeshiva of Rabbeinu Hananel. Rabbeinu Hananel is the uh, first uh, attempt to write a commentary to the Talmud. Uh, he's a hundred years before Rabbeinu Gershom attempts it, and he's almost two hundred years before Rashi's commentary. And uh, you'll find in the uh, Vilna edition of the Talmud, on certain of the tractates of the Talmud, on the side of the page, there appears the commentary of Rabbeinu Hananel. Rabbeinu Hananel lived in Kairuan. He established a great yeshiva there, and it was the center of Jewish scholarship. In Fez, Jewish scholarship also took off. Reb Shmuel ben Chofni who was the uh, great Goon in Babylonia. His father came to Morocco and helped establish a yeshiva. But the ones that really built Fez was the great uh, Rabbeinu Yitzchok Al-Fasi. Al-Fasi means from Fez, Al-Fasi. And that's the Alphus. And that's the street here in Rechavia. And he established a great yeshiva in Fez. He had two great centers of learning, Kairuan and Fez, but uh, both diminished very rapidly because, uh, as often happens in Jewish life, uh, the students and even the teachers and even the yeshiva itself leaves for greener pastures. And the greener pastures were certainly all in Spain. Jews left for Spain, anyone who had money, uh, anyone who wanted to have a higher education, anyone that wanted culture, anyone that wanted greater Torah knowledge, uh, crossed the Straits of Gibraltar, which are very narrow, and he came to the golden age of Spain. So why should he stay in Morocco or in Tunisia under uh, adverse conditions of terrible persecution and poverty when he can go across a small distance of water and come to a place where he will find himself in a superior society. Now, the Rif himself, Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Fasi, left Fez when he was already an old man. Various uh, dates are attributed to his age, uh, but he was certainly in his 80s, some say even in his 90s when he left. And he came to the Spanish city of Lucca. And in Lucca, he founded, he transplanted his yeshiva. And in Lucca, he had a student, a young student, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Megash. Now, uh, there are those that say that Yosef Ibn Megash started out also in North Africa and came to Spain, though most of the scholars think that he was Spanish by origin. But in any event, he was a young student. And he became the major disciple of the Rif, of Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Fasi. To the extent when the Rif died on his deathbed, he appointed Rabbi Yosef Ibn Magash to be the Rosh Yeshiva over and above his own son, who had uh, seemed to uh, be certain that the honor would fall to him. Now, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Magash 
he was a very young man when he started in the yeshiva in Luka. He had as a student Rabbi Maimon, who was the father of the Rambam. And when the Rambam was a small child, five or six years old, and Rabbi Yosef Iman Megash lay on his deathbed, his father brought him to receive a blessing from Rabbi Yosef Iman Megash, who said, by legend, uh, that this is a child that will be the light of Israel. Uh, and he blessed him. And it's interesting that the Rambam, in his commentary to the Mishnah, even though he never really studied under Rabbi Yosef Magash, he studied under his father, and his father was the disciple. He says, when I think of how much Torah Rabbi Yosef Magash knew, in comparison to me, the Rambam says, so I have a headache, Roshi Mavis, my head bursts. I can't bear to think of what a great scholar he was. So this was all a product of North Africa, a product of Morocco. And the Jews were settled in Fez, in Cairo, in Tangier, in Tunisia. There was an ancient uh, port, a half-island city called Jerba. It was in the news not long ago because of the Al-Qaeda attack on the synagogue in Jerba, where uh, 1920 uh, German tourists were killed. And uh, this is also very, very ancient. The tradition of the Jews of Jerbar is rather that they were there from the time of Solomon also. And they have very old Sifrei Torah, and they have, very, they have ancient customs. And it was a center of Jewish learning and Jewish piety. Uh, there's a, a Tunisian shul in Akko here in Israel, which is a fascinating place to see. Because the, oh, the walls, the ceilings, everything is covered with mosaics. The floors, it's just a, an unbelievable sight. But those are Jews from Tunisia, and they brought their customs, and they brought their ritual, they brought their understanding of what it was, and uh, have attempted to preserve it. Though one must say that here in Israel, uh, they have not fared as well in being able to do so. Now, uh, in Fez... Uh, the Jewish community uh, was visited by the Rambam and his father and his brother when they escaped from the Almohads uh, in Spain, when the Almohads took over Cordova, and they ran away. They, so now the traffic came the other way. Spanish Jews ran back to North Africa. The Rambam did not have a high opinion of the Jews in Fez. We have a letter here. I don't want to read all of it. But uh, just to give you a, uh, a flavor of what the Rambam said, quote, Beware of the inhabitants of the West, of the country called Jerba, of the Barbary district. And he says, in my opinion, they are more ignorant than the rest of mankind, though they are very attached to a belief in God. Heaven is my witness that they can be compared only to those who live by the Karaites, who possess no oral law. They have no spirit of study, either of the Chumash, the Prophets, or the Talmud. Not even when they uh, abide by the laws do they have any understanding of what they are doing. They do not speak to women during their menstrual period, and they even don't stand on the ground touched by her. And the Rambam says that that is primitive beyond that they got from the outside. They never got that from us. And it's true that amongst the Berber tribes, uh, such practices were common. They do not eat the hind part of slaughtered animals because they don't know how to remove the uh, sciatic nerve, the gidanosha. The Rambam says, in short, he said, I'm very disappointed in them, and he kept on going. Let's just say that it's, the Rambam is not an easy man to please uh, when you're in that level of uh, that stature of knowledge and of learning. But uh, the Rambam is struck by what I mentioned before, the difference between the Spanish Jews, who are basically the same stock, 
and the Jews who remained in North Africa. Because the Jews who remained in North Africa somehow were frozen by the environment that they were in, and they did not benefit from the uh, culture and from the intellectual stimulation that occurred in Spain. At the time of the Spanish expulsion in 1492, so a hundred years before that, in 1391, there was a tremendous pogrom in Spain, created by uh, Vincent Ferrer and other uh, Christian preachers. And the pogrom uh, killed thousands of Jews, and it forced almost a uh, hundred thousand Jews to convert. Now, most of the conversos, almost all of them, had no intention of being Christians, which just raised the fury of the Christians even more. I mentioned uh, that, uh, for instance, that uh, Don Isaac Abravanel, the Abarbanel, his grandfather converted. And his grandfather sent uh, Don Isaac's father and the entire family to Lisbon so that because there they could be Jews. But he stayed in Spain because of the business and he never, never resumed his Judaism publicly. Publicly remained a Christian till the end. So you have here an anomaly, really almost an unbelievable situation, that Don Yitzhak Abarbanel's grandfather is a converted Christian, but because of him he preserved the whole family and uh, we're blessed with having the Abarbanel because of it. So the Jews came back to North Africa. They came back to Fez and Kairouan and to all of these places, the Tangiers. And uh, they revitalized the Jewish community. There also was a large immigration of Jews from Leghorn, Italy, that came to North Africa. So that you had now in North Africa different communities. You had the original Mugrabi community. Yeah, the Spanish community, the Sephardic community, and the Sephardic community, since it had some money, well, you know, wealth is a relative thing, so they had more money than the people who lived there, and they had more culture, and uh, they thought more highly of themselves, so they became the dominant group. And then you had the Italian Jews, the Leghorn Jews, who uh, had their own synagogues and their own culture, and uh, who were almost a separate group all onto themselves. What happened was that uh, after 1492, a hundred years later, even more Jews from Spain came because that was the easiest escape route, was just to go across the Straits of Gibraltar and to come to uh, North Africa. And so therefore we can say that the Mugrabi community was almost overrun by the Spanish community. But a strange thing happened. Even though the Spaniards were so confident of themselves and so certain that they were going to run things, and they did for quite a while, eventually they became Mugrabi. And uh, unlike the Spanish Jews that went uh, east uh, to the land of Israel or to the Balkans or to Turkey and who retained that Sephardic flavor, these Jews became North African Jews became Mugrabi Jews. And so therefore you'll hear today in the Sephardic community there's the Edot HaMizrach, the Jews who come from the Middle East, Iraq, Turkey, Lebanon, Syria. And then there are Jews from the Mugrabi. There are Jews who come from the Western communities, from North Africa. And they're two distinct groups, even though originally they probably were one. And almost in every neighborhood in Yerushalayim, you'll be able to find Mugrabi synagogues. The Mugrabi have their own Hevra uh, Kadisha, they have their own cemeteries, they have everything. They're all completely separate from the regular uh, Sephardi groups because of their uh, attachment to themselves and to their customs. There was no area in the Jewish world that was affected as greatly by the Shabzite Svi false messianism as the Jews in North Africa. Whereas in Europe, the estimates are that 20-25% of the Jews believed. In North Africa, you could say 75-80% believed. And uh, their belief was so strong that even after 
the apostasy, even after he converted to Islam, the Sabbatean movement was very powerful, it was very strong, it was there, and it led to a great deal of problems within the Jewish community itself. The Jews were so messianic, in 1672, we have a record of a Dutch captain of a ship who came and he said that on board his ship were Dutch Jews who proclaimed that the long-waited-for Messiah was born in Holland at the beginning of 1672. In other words, they came and they told these Jews, primitive Jews, that the Mashiach was born in Holland in 1672. The Jews, hearing of this good news, made a second feast of Sukkot and held a general rejoicing for eight days together in honor of the news. But uh, as we all know, it was uh, worse than false. It was uh, misleading to, uh, to a great extent. The Jews were persecuted unmercifully after the Shabbat Shalom because the Muslims felt that the Jews, by claiming to have a Messiah, and they claim that they're going to take the land of Israel back from the Muslims, and they claim they're going to build a temple on the Temple Mount, and therefore the mosques will have to go. So they felt that the Jews had declared a holy war against them. In our time, secular Zionism has taken the place of what was the religious messianism in the 17th century, so that the Muslim world sees uh, the state of Israel as being uh, not only its enemy, but, uh, so to speak, we both can't be right. And because we both can't be right, then we're going to prove to you how wrong you are by destroying you. So the Jews in North Africa suffered abysmally at the hands of the Muslims. Here is a report from a, uh, a British diplomat at the end of the 17th century who was stationed in North Africa. He said, the Jews seldom go alone into the country because the Arabs and barbarians generally cut the throats of Jews that they find. There is scarcely any justice done to them in the country. If they talk too much in their own defense before a governor, he makes the guards whip them. When they bury any of their number, the boys, the Arab boys, beat and throw stones at them, spit in their faces, and give them a thousand curses. Among themselves, they exercise wonderful charity towards their poor and attempt to help everyone according to their ability. But their life is miserable. Now, there were rules that were passed that, for instance, in a Jewish uh, burial, all of the pallbearers have to run with the body to the cemetery. You're not allowed to walk, and certainly you weren't allowed to put it in a wagon to be pulled. So you had to run with it. The cemetery was always very, very far out of town. And uh, it was, in, in essence, running the gauntlet because all the Muslim children were there throwing stones. The Intifada is not a modern invention. Tragically so, but it is not a modern invention. The difference is that this time, you know, there is uh, a price to be paid for it, whereas in these uh, countries, nothing was, uh, was exacted. The only thing that made the Jewish position bearable is that the Muslims were worse to the Christians. And therefore, by doing that, the Muslims brought in the great powers of Europe who were interested in protecting the Christians who lived in North Africa. And when they came, so then they said that they're not only going to protect the Christians, they're going to protect the Jews as well. And that was the ameliorating situation uh, that allowed the Jews somehow to survive. In the year 1731, Great Britain came to uh, 
the uh, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia area, the Barbary states, as they call them, the British Navy. And uh, the British took over the protection of Christians. The French, not to be outdone by the British, also came and they said that they're going to protect the Christians. Everybody was fighting over who's going to protect the Christians. So Great Britain said they're going to protect the Jews as well. And the Jewish situation uh, improved. However, the resentment of the Muslims, of the rulers of the country, the resentment against these uh, European states coming into their country and telling them what to do, only fueled further anti-Semitism because of the fact that the Jews openly backed these Western countries that came to protect them. And therefore, uh, I think if you look at it, you see uh, really a replay of what's going on in our time. You know, the big Satan, the little Satan. The entire thing that we see in front of us in the Middle East and in the Muslim world. The resentment against the West, against the United States, against Great Britain. And they all see that Israel is part of it. And that Israel supports the West. And Israel is the West. And therefore that further inflames them if they needed any other reason to be inflamed. In 1789, there was a false messiah. That, oh, by the way, the, the, uh, there was like a false messiah every 30 years in Morocco and in uh, Tunisia. It was uh, rampant. Uh, but in 1789, there was one that uh, really uh, had a following, and the uh, Muslim rulers beheaded him, and they forced the Jews to pay uh, uh, a punitive tax, and they, uh, many, many Jews were killed, and uh, the situation was uh, just uh, awful. Let me read again. This is 1790. So this is already after the American Revolution. And it's on the way to the French Revolution. So the uh, French ambassador writes, The Jews possess neither land nor gardens, nor can they enjoy any fruit. They must wear only black are obliged when they pass through the mosques or through streets in which there are mosques to walk barefoot. The Jew dare not defend himself because the Koran and the judge will always be in favor of the Mohammedan. Notwithstanding this state of impression, the Jews have adjusted and have many advantages. They better understand trade. They act as agents and brokers. They profit by their own wisdom and by the ignorance of the Moors who surround them. Some have European correspondence, others are goldsmiths, tailors, gunsmiths, and masons. More industrious and artful and better informed than the native population, the Jews are employed by the government, which has no choice but to deal with them if they want things to work. That's 200 years ago. Jews were also employed as ambassadors to foreign courts by the Muslim rulers of Morocco, simply because of the fact that they felt that Jews had these international connections, etc., and that Jews spoke languages, and that therefore they would... Uh, uh, so you have this, it's really schizophrenic. On one hand, you need the Jews. On the other hand, you don't want the Jews. On one hand, the Jews are good for you. On the other hand, the Jews are the worst thing that happened to you. It's a, uh, it really is a uh, very, very difficult situation for the Jews because anything that they're going to do is wrong. Nevertheless, the communities continued. You had great Rabbonim. You had the Orachayim HaKadosh, Chaim Ben-Eter, who's buried here in Yerushalayim. You had many, many great Talmidic HaChomim and many great Kabbalists. It was a center of Kabbalah. It was a center of understanding Kabbalah. Uh, in our time, you know, uh, Abu Chatzera and the, all of the uh, Mekubolim from uh, that part of the world came here to Israel and reestablished themselves and uh, were uh, very well known. In 1863, there were 11 Jews that were arrested on trumped-up charges 
and were convicted to be executed in Tunis. Moses Montefiore came. What we need is a Moses Montefiore today. But he came with a letter from Queen Victoria, which meant something. But he came also, there were two British warships in the harbor, which made the letter, uh, you know, uh, it made sure that the Sultan would read the letter. And Montefiore successfully negotiated the release of all of those Jews. You know, there are Jews sitting in Iran, there are Jews uh, all over the, the world that sit in problems and you can't get them out. And Montefiore devoted his life to uh, freeing uh, Jews who were illegally held, who were really uh, not guilty of anything except being Jews. Not only that, in 1864, uh, Montefiore was able to extract from the Sultan again because of the letter from Queen Victoria and the British warships in the harbor. And you have to remember that Britain now owns Gibraltar, right across. In the 1700s, Britain, Britain took over Gibraltar. And uh, until today, it still is a British crown colony. Spain wants it back. Uh, there's constant problems between Spain and England. The people who live in Gibraltar want to live as British subjects and not as Spanish citizens. Now, the Jews in Gibraltar, one of the most interesting communities, the Jews in Gibraltar are uh, very well situated. Uh, a number of the governor generals of Gibraltar have been Jewish. All the Jewish stores are closed on Shabbat in uh, Gibraltar. And because the Jews are closed on Shabbat, most of the stores are closed on Saturday as well. Uh, the Jews there have a very, very strong influence, especially the Levy family and other families that are very well known and uh, who uh, really uh, are the backbone of the Gibraltar community. Well, if England is only, uh, you know, 30 kilometers away with the British Navy sitting in Gibraltar right under the rock, uh, the Moroccan uh, leaders have to pay attention. They have to somehow uh, do something uh, to uh, curry favor with the British. And uh, because of Montefiore, the way to do it was to grant equal rights to Jews. So this is the first Muslim country to grant Jews equal rights. And this happened in 1864. Nevertheless, in 1865, there was a pogrom where 307 Jews were killed. And uh, the uh, ideas of law and justice can be expressed in the Moroccan proverb, one may kill as many as seven Jews without ever being punished. That was the mindset of the people. So even though if the government is willing to give you equal rights, and the government is willing to say that you should be a citizen, but you cannot change a mindset that's a thousand years old by signing a piece of paper. And I think that that's part of the problem that we face here in the land of Israel also, is that we can sign all the papers we want, but unless the mindset starts to change, unless people, you know, that one may kill as many as seven Jews without any punishment, son, here if you go to heaven for blowing yourself up and killing Jews with you, so then no paper is going to suffice, as the civil rights there did not really change the situation of, uh, of the Jews. In 1767, France also acquired the right to protect its citizens, and France began to penetrate Morocco and Tunisia. And with France came uh, the alliance, the Israelite, the, uh, the Kol Yisrael Haverim school system, uh, with it uh, came new schools, uh, Western schools, where the basic language it was taught was French. And that's why most of the Mugrabi Jews know French very well. Uh, French, French, uh, French is sometimes, if not its first language, certainly their second language. And the uh, French influence was very, very strong. Eventually, uh, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco belonged to France. I mean, they were colonies of France. 
and uh, part of Morocco was a colony of Spain in the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. And uh, this, the French uh, were very powerful there. In fact, in the Second World War, Morocco was under the Vichy French. Now, the Vichy French in France cooperated with the Nazis and sent uh, 60,000 French Jews to their death in Auschwitz and other camps. And uh, that was the famous trial of Papon and the other uh, murderers. The French uh, had a great deal of collaboration with the Germans, especially when it came to destroying the Jews. But in Vichy, France, in Morocco and uh, Tunisia, the Jews somehow survived. They didn't turn the Jews over to the Germans. Later, when the German army came, the Africa Corps came into Africa, into North Africa. Uh, so uh, they were so busy trying to uh, somehow uh, conquer uh, Libya and Egypt and getting to the Suez Canal that the regular German uh, anti-Jewish killers never arrived. And because of that, the community escaped pretty much unscathed, though many were killed. And later, in uh, the beginning of uh, 1943, when uh, the United, I think it was in June, the United States and uh, Britain invaded North Africa, uh, so they made a deal with the French, with the Vichy government there, with Admiral Darlan, etc., that the French army that was stationed there would not oppose the invasion. And because of that, they forgot that they were collaborationists. They forgot that they, like they erased the entire past uh, because they didn't want to have to fight two armies. They just fought the German army. They want to have to fight the French as well. Uh, but as far as the Jews were concerned, uh, the uh, period of the Second World War in Morocco and in Tunisia was far better than it was in Poland and Lithuania. Uh, because of the fact that the Germans were unable to uh, really do what they wanted to. Zionism uh, and uh, the ideas of the West came, uh, secularism, came at the end of the 19th century. Uh, they came uh, in the French schools, but they came in Hebrew schools as well. And Zionism was very, very popular. It did not provoke the opposition of the rabbis that it did, let's say, in Eastern Europe. The Chacham in Morocco and uh, Tunisia, uh, if not a Zionist, uh, did not feel that it had to be opposed at all costs, that Jews had to uh, somehow be driven from it. And because of that, therefore, uh, there was a reservoir of support. Nevertheless, till the end, till the end, the 20th century, here's a report that was made to the United Nations in 1946 uh, regarding conditions of Jews in Morocco. Nowhere in Morocco does the Jew receive common justice. From the cradle to the grave, he is despised and vituperated. An apology being necessary even for an allusion to him in polite society. Every possible indignity is heaped upon him, and he enjoys neither social nor civil equality with his neighbors. They tolerate him only because he has rendered himself indispensable and knows how under the most unfavorable of circumstances to contribute to society, which he is always ready to do, and of which he may ultimately be despoiled of his wealth by powerful officials. He is known as a dimmy, or tributary, since he is only tolerated on that basis, and special contributions are wrung from him on every possible occasion. Now, I think that if we have this background, we can understand our brethren that come from Morocco and Tunisia uh, better uh, because of the, uh, the luggage that they brought with them, and because of the baggage of such an experience. Whereas uh, Eastern European Jews also suffered in this fashion, but Eastern European Jews always somehow were able to rise above it, and here the Jews were almost crushed by it, almost always crushed by it. They were unable to, to assert themselves in a different fashion.
even though polygamy was permitted uh, in uh, the Mugrabe, it is, was never common. And uh, they permitted it only if the first wife uh, granted permission. The uh, study of the Talmud and of uh, Jewish texts was far different than it was in Eastern Europe. had uh, different uh, uh, emphasis. And much of it was done by rote, and much of it was done by memory. But there were great, as I mentioned, there were great rabbis, great rabbonim. Now, here in Israel, uh, the, there was a rabbi Getz of blessed memory, who was the rov of the Kotel Maravi. His son was killed in the 1967 war at the Kotel. And he later was appointed as the Rav of the Kotel. And he served for, I think, 30 years almost as the Rav of the Kotel. If you ever saw him, so he had this great white spodic strimal, which is what the uh, Tunisian Rabonim wore, and the white grounds and the white cloth. And uh, he was a uh, really a charismatic, uh, mysterious figure. Uh, and he was extremely, extremely uh, popular, uh, and he's probably the only uh, Tunisian rabbi that rose to, uh, to such a uh, stature uh, here in the country. In uh, 1950, after the war and the uh, defeat of the Arab armies, uh, the Jews were forced to leave Morocco and Tunisia. Uh, 90% of the Jewish population left. A few hundred thousand of them came here all at one time. When they came here, they suffered terrible indignities. Uh, they were placed in Mabarot, in, uh, in uh, transient camps. But worse than that, their faith was taken from them, their culture was taken from them. They were uh, really subjected to, uh, to uh, brutal Ashkenazi uh, discrimination. And... Uh, to a certain extent, uh, that, uh, that experience has not been forgotten. I think it's the basis for the Sephardic political parties, and it's the basis for still that there is not the unity in our camp between these uh, sections of Jewry uh, that there should be. As I mentioned, there were Jews that remained in Morocco, and remain in Morocco until today. I myself was in the shul in Tangier, there still are 400 Jews there. The shul still operates, uh, though the shul is hidden in a uh, small uh, alleyway. Uh, has no public presence whatsoever. And you say, well, why did Jews stay? I don't know why Jews stay, but they do. Uh, it's, there are quite a few thousand Jews that are still in Morocco. The king, uh, Hassan, has protected them uh, after the 67 war. There were great riots. After the 1973 Yom Kippur War, there were great riots. Uh, there were riots not long ago after uh, the beginning of the Intifada. But the government has always attempted lately, in the last uh, decade, two decades, to protect the Jewish population from the mobs of the Muslims. There are Jews that live in uh, Fez. There are Jews that live in Tangier. There are Jews that live in the entire area in Casablanca. Uh, all over, uh, but in small numbers and with a very, very low profile. I was told a story regarding a certain great Jewish family that came from Morocco and then emigrated to the West, and the family made a tremendous amount of money, were very, very wealthy, but they were friends with the king of Morocco because the family were, was engaged in business with the king, their father was engaged, they went to school, the same private school that the king went to when he was a child. So that when it was the 25th anniversary of the king, they came to him and they offered that they were going to build two Jewish schools in Morocco, one for boys and one for girls, and name it after the king. And the king, the story is, that the king told him, he said, are you crazy? You're building it in Morocco? He said, build it in Jerusalem. What are you building it in Morocco for? And they did build it in Jerusalem, here in Katamon. 
and there is a boys school and a girls school and there's a plaque there on behalf of the king of Morocco who inspired them to uh, you know sometimes Jews don't figure it out themselves you need a little help from the outside as to what the right thing is and where it should have been done where it has a place so uh, the uh, communities uh, those great communities are gone Uh, it's an aging population it's a population that uh, uh, has uh, Chabad is there Chabad has done the most to keep the communities alive and after the second world war Uh, there were hundreds of Moroccan young men that were brought to American yeshivas. They were brought to Chaim Berlin and Tor Vadas in New York. And uh, many of them occupy uh, major roles in Jewish life in the United States. And the Mir Yeshiva, Rabbi Kalmanovitz, brought uh, a whole uh, group of uh, Moroccan young men. But in Morocco itself, there, uh, there is really very little that can be done and uh, eventually uh, most of Moroccan Jewry exists here in the land of Israel and uh, it's a large group, a strong group and it's still finding its way so uh, the story is not over no Jewish story is ever over but the story is not over as to what will be but uh, the communities in North Africa themselves are really minor today small specks in a sea of uh, Muslim hatred and uh, there really is no uh, even even tourists are not encouraged to go there because of the fact that uh, it simply is it's, it's not pleasant I don't, don't want to say it's dangerous but it's not pleasant for Jews in uh, Muslim countries and it's certainly not pleasant for those who live there as well This concludes lecture number 216, entitled Tunisia Morocco by Rabbi Beryl Wine. For information, please contact the Destiny Foundation at 1-800-499-WINE. That's 1-800-499-9346. We can also be reached by email at info at jewishdestiny.com. Shop online at www.rabbiwine.com. Due to copyright laws, we kindly request that there be no duplication of this lecture.